Well, guys, this morning, this is our next to last morning in the book of Colossians. We've been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the New Testament book of Colossians. And this morning brings us to Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Next week, we're going to wrap up Colossians. Um, But this morning, we're in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, Before we turn our attention to studying these verses, um, and I, I promise I won't add extra time onto the service, but let me do this. I think we first need to zoom out and put these words into the overall flow of what Paul has been saying up to this point. It is remarkable to me given the importance that we place on the activity of evangelism, that its first mention comes here at the very end of the body of his letter. I say remarkable because Paul is himself a missionary whose life is consumed with evangelistic effort. Everywhere he goes, he is making an appeal for the gospel. And it's remarkable, too, because although Christianity would one day flourish and grow into a movement with a large and growing following, at the time this letter was written, most of the world lay in darkness. All of Europe was an unreached people group. Nearly every people on the face of the earth knew nothing of the gospel and knew nothing of the great commission calling to go and make disciples of all nations, which is a great central governing concern right at the heart of the church. The need was great to reach the lost. And churches like the one in Colossae or our church here in State Road were, are, God's plan to reach the lost, and there is no plan B. Nevertheless, Paul pours out 1,600 words to the Colossians before he ever takes up the topic of opening their mouths and sharing what they know with the lost. In those 1,600 words, he speaks to the Colossians about the basis of their own hope in Jesus. He calls them over and over again to grow in the knowledge of God through the study of Scripture and the apostles' teachings. He calls them to be lovers of righteousness and to pursue a personal righteousness, not in a performative way, but in the sincerity of their hearts. He calls upon them to foster a community that celebrates godliness and confronts sin in the midst. 
He warns them against some false teachings that threaten to lure them away from the hope that they had found in the gospel. He speaks a great deal about how they ought to live out the gospel among themselves within the church, and above all was the rule of law of love. The point I want to make here is this. We, within the church, we often think and speak as though evangelism is the activity that is closest to God's heart and his purposes for us as his people. And although I don't want to downplay at all, guys, I don't at all want to minimize at all the urgent, important need for us to open our mouths and give voice to the hope we have in Jesus. I think every one of us should go out of here this morning uh, filled with a, a sense of the desperate, urgent need of this hour for each and every one of us to be evangelists and missionaries in the circles where God has put you. But we need to see this. Worship, um, evangelism is the means to something that is closer to God's heart. Evangelism exists because God wants worshipers. And what I see in Paul's letter to the Colossians is that he places the first emphasis on us being a people who, were, who are worshiping God. And then evangelism is the natural overflow of hearts that are filled with that. When I study the Bible, it seems to me that evangelistic effort is not the highest goal. It is the means of gaining worshipers for God. That's the goal. I'm oftentimes struck in Genesis 1.28, God commands Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He then gives the same command to Noah. Genesis 9.1, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then in Matthew 28, 19, comes those familiar words of the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what we should see in all of this is that these three commands, two of them identical in wording, but all three identical in spirit, their intent, for in each God is saying, fill the earth with worshipers of me. Be fruitful, multiply, go and make disciples of all nations. The intent of these commands is identical. Fill the earth with people who will glorify me, who will worship. Our highest calling as a Christian is not to do evangelism, but to be a worshiper. And yes, when a person becomes a true worshiper of God, someone who delights in God, who makes much of God, who treasures God, and who puts him at the center of their life, it will naturally result in them sharing the good news of the gospel with others. Witnessing to the truth of the gospel, it rises naturally in the, in the heart of a worshiper. Really, I know it's not biblically accurate to put evangelism and worship into two separate and distinct categories. Uh, when done in the right spirit, evangelism is worship. 
all of life's activities, evangelism included, can and should be done as worship to God. I've made this point on other Sundays before, but what is worship? (laughs) Uh, In English, we have this weird suffix. I always find it helpful to couch it in this, uh, in pointing this out. We add ship to lots of things. Like this podium up here, this pulpit, is craftsmanship, ship. We add that to say that this is a physical, visible manifestation of things that are unseen. A craftsman has certain gifts and abilities and training. And looking at that person, you can't see that all that lies within them. But then they grab their tools and some wood and they start working and this is what comes of it. And we say, now that is craftsmanship. Or somebody might show up and they are to you a great friend. And you call the thing that you have come to enjoy with them friendship. They have made visible and real in your life a thing that was invisible and unseen. But it's now seen and visible and experienced, tangible. And you call that friendship. And so when we talk about worship, this is the old English word the actual, the root of it is worth. And so, worthship. It is our outward demonstration of how much worth God has to us. It is the visible demonstration of our inner treasuring of God. That's what worship is. It couldn't be seen, but then we open our mouths or our homes or we live in a certain way that shows outwardly, visibly, our inner treasuring of God and its worship. And so, yes, when a person becomes a true worshiper of God, someone who delights in God, makes much of Him, it will show up. It will be visible. However, what Paul is showing us by putting any talk of evangelism on the back end of all those other important conversations with the Colossians is that worship is not only the goal of evangelism, but it is also what fuels evangelism. Our delight in God is what compels us to share Him. Where God is not personally treasured, He he is not proclaimed. I steal that line from John Piper. I like it. That's what worship is. It's the outward expression of our inner treasuring of God. And evangelism will spill forth from our mouths when our hearts have been captured by the excellence and necessity and beauty of the gospel. Uh, I remember when I was pastoring in Florida, um, I used to pray a lot. I I love one of the great things about being a pastor, something you guys don't have in your lives probably, is I like this, sometimes in the week this building is gloriously empty. (laughs) I love to worship in an empty meeting hall. I don't know what that is, but I'll kick off my shoes in the front and I'll just walk circles. And I love just praying in a big empty hall. I don't know what that is, but I love it. And I was walking circles in the sanctuary of the church in Lulu, Florida, where I was pastoring. And I was praying to God, fill this place with worshipers. And something in my spirit made me feel that that prayer was close, but not quite right. (laughs) God, fill this place with worshipers. 
And I, I'm not a wise person. I don't think God often speaks to me in this way, but I didn't hear an audible voice or anything like that, but God just impressed on my heart as I was praying in that empty sanctuary, pray that God, pray that I would fill this place with worship. And it radically changed how I prayed for that church. Rather than saying, God, fill this place with worshipers, I began to pray, God, fill this place with worship. And it was a different prayer, a different quality of prayer, and I felt God's pleasure in it. I still pray that to this day. God, fill this place with worship. And I don't just mean this room. I mean animate our fellowship. Fill our family with worship. It's right. It's good. And we see Paul's approach in this letter to the Colossians. I'm reminded of that really helpful maxim, which I think we owe to A.W. Tozer. I think he's the one that said it that what we win a person with is what we win a person to. Many church leaders worry that their churches are not full of worshipers. But the real problem might just be that their churches are not full of worship. There's no commitment there to personal righteousness. There is no hungering or thirsting after God's word. There is not much radical following of Jesus' example or a concern for world missions. Much of the singing is a movement of the lips and not the heart. And what time does the football game start? The question among many church leaders seems to be, why aren't more people here? When perhaps a more worthy and helpful question might be, why is God no longer in the midst? We must be careful how we define the problem, for that is what will guide us in forming a solution. Many churches are caught caught up in putting on a show precisely because they see a lack of people as the problem. However, those who are drawn to a show might be the sort of who want to make a showing before men themselves. And so Paul, before he ever says, go and win them, He first lays out over 1,600 plus words what he wants a person to be one to. I remember when I was a young man, uh, I was not yet married to Sarah, but I was in a group on my campus that was talking about, um, there was a group that met to talk about preparing our hearts before we ever got married. And somebody there was influenced by another Christian thought leader. I don't think it was an original thought to this man. Um, but he was sharing something from a book he had read, and I don't know what the book was. But he said, men, you need to first build a life to invite a woman into. That hit me as a new thought at the time, that um, before I asked a woman to marry me, I needed to first have something, a life to ask a woman to come join me in chasing after, to going for. And what Paul is doing here in 1,600-plus words saying to the Colossian church, before you go and say, come join us in this movement, (laughs) is first make that movement real among you. That this is a, a, a robust, strong, muscular expression of the Christian life that then you can go and say, come and be warmed at the fire where we're being warmed at. And it's very backwards to make the pursuit of people the goal of the church. It's the pursuit of God. And then we say, come join us in pursuing God. 
And that's why Paul here lays out 1,600 plus words, all this stuff before he ever mentions sharing your faith with others. Make it real among you. Remember, growth for the sake of growth. That's the ideology of the cancer cell. It's not healthy. We must pay attention as we grow to what we are growing. And I think this is the main idea behind Paul's careful approach to the topic of evangelism. By placing the first importance on putting on Christ personally. That's his first emphasis for him. Put on Christ. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, that one of the great difficulties in church leadership generally is the lack of any good metrics for what matters most. There's just no metrics for what's closest to God's heart. We can measure miles in ministry, numbers of sermons given. We can, and that's all, we should measure those things. I'm not criticizing that at those, that record keeping, that's, that's good. But let's be square about the fact that we have no measure here at State Road of how often gossip was heard and not repeated. We have no measure of how many times people were tempted and said no to sin. I have no way of measuring that. Those things that are closest to God's heart, we have no way of measuring. I think the only way that we can enjoy some sense of progress in those areas is for us as God's people to share our stories. And I want to, in this coming year, and as we go into this coming year, we can start now in 2023, I want to begin, I've been led by the Lord, I feel, to extend to you a challenge to share your stories. Uh, God, God's people need to hear from you about how small groups, for example, may have changed, may have impacted you for Christ, or how your you've been changed and transformed as you've been walking with God's people in different ways. We just need to hear your stories about what God is doing in your life. And I'm afraid of making too many examples for fear that you'll think it's limited to those kinds of stories. We worship a wild God. (laughs) And he may be laying something on your heart to share that's out of left field. But rather than having a Sunday where we do that, I'm just going to put the invitation out there, and I'm going to let it settle heavily and uncomfortably on your heart. (laughs) God's people need to hear from you. They do. And if you feel a growing burden, don't shove that back down. Be brave. Um, One of the things that people don't realize about me is that when I first felt a calling to pastoral ministry, one of the great obstacles was fear standing up in front of people and talking. Stop looking at me, (laughs) all of you. (laughs) Look away! Some of us have this natural stage fright thing, I get it. But I'm not going to make that easier on you. God's people need to hear your story. And if God has laid that on your heart, something to share... It will involve you standing up in front of people and sharing it. We don't have any metric, 
but we do have you in your story. And I think God's people would be greatly encouraged if you would share how God has been growing you in Christ-likeness, growing you in these different areas that we talk about. Please prayerfully consider sharing your story. Okay, some of you are getting worried. (laughs) He hasn't even gotten to the text yet. I'll be brief, I promise. Our text for this morning is made up of two parts. Verses 2 through 4 make up the first part. Verses 5 and 6 are the second part. The first part has to do with our indirect involvement in evangelism through prayer. And the second part has to do with our direct involvement in evangelism through how we live, our mode of living, and by opening up your mouth and sharing the gospel with words. You see, Paul did wait a long time in this letter before he got around to evangelism, but he, it is here, and it is strong, it is directive, and it is something we need to hear and not neglect. I'll break it out into this way. The first part, he's, he is going to describe talking to God about people. And in the second part, he's going to talk about talking to people about God. These are the two necessary parts of evangelism. We need to talk to God about people, and we must talk to people about our God. Here's the first part. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. First of all, blown away that Paul the Apostle asks this crew of brand new baby Christians. We've made the point so far in our our study of Colossians that this is a church made up entirely of brand new Christians. Not only that, but they weren't even brought up in the Old Testament tradition of Judaism, which flows seamlessly into Christianity. They don't even probably have that beginning. These are people who are brought into Christianity out of worship to Zeus and other, the pantheon of gods in the Greco-Roman world. And now they're brand new baby Christians, and it blows my mind that Paul, who is probably the most articulate mature, wise, discerning Christian I can imagine has to say to these people, I need you to pray for me. I need your prayers in order for there to be meaningful breakthroughs in my own work of evangelism. Success is not riding on Paul's ability with words or his knowledge of the scriptures or his pugnacious, indomitable spirit. The breakthrough, the thing that's needed is for God to provide the increase. And Paul, for all of his personal strengths and attributes, knows this, and he is pleading with the Colossians who themselves, although they're brand new and are not as far along in the things of God, nevertheless have the ability to put their finger on the trigger of prayer and effect great change by talking to God. This is an amazing thing. Some of us think, this thought exists and has been spoken to me, that some people are hesitant to share the simple truth of the gospel 
because they have not studied as much as a pastor has. Or, or, or they don't have as many years under their belt. Paul makes it very plain here that what's needed, he doesn't have. Please pray. Paul prays here that God would give him clarity when he speaks. His are the very words that have been given to him by God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we study. He speaks with great clarity and force. But he knows that God is needed, and so he asks for us, pray also for us, and don't neglect prayer among yourselves. This is a clear confession that Paul understands that something more than Paul and greater than Paul is needed to win the lost. You can feel the depths of Paul's need in these words. What counts most in Christian ministry cannot be accomplished by man all by himself. And if we think a thing can be done without prayer, it's the same as thinking it can be done without God. And God has set things up so that transformation and ministry breakthroughs, they come by prayer. There's a very simple challenge here, guys. Very simple. Are we praying for the lost in our lives? Are you praying for those who have made it their life's work to share the good news of the gospel with lost people? Our missionaries, for example. You want to talk about Pastor Appreciation Month. <laughs> and in all your very kind expressions of appreciation for me and Andrew and Aaron, do you know what we need most? Not just this month, but always. Prayer that I would be courageous. That God would give me the capacity when I open my mouth to make sense. For opportunities and breakthroughs. I think these kinds of prayers are actually somewhat rare among Christians. Maybe not, again, we have no metrics for this. <laughs> I would love to hear those stories. How do you pray? How has prayer impacted you? We need those stories because I have no metric. I don't know how much you pray for these sorts of things. But please do. That's the thing. I don't know if it's happening or how much it's happening, but please do. If we don't pray, then you're just left with people like me. <laughs> and that's not enough. That's scary. That's not going to do it. Guys, please be praying. Please be praying. Then we come to talking to people about God. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Guys, I need to be very quick here, but here we have these two twin pillars of evangelism. He starts by saying, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Live in a way that makes Jesus visible. That's one pillar, how you live. And then he says... Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So live the gospel and speak the gospel. Uh, if you kick out one of these pillars, the whole thing collapses. Uh, if you speak the gospel but live in a way that denies it, you're a hypocrite. If you live the gospel but never speak the gospel, you're a mystery. I think some of us have been seduced by the thought, um, 
preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. It's an often misquoted um, quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And the reason why I'm uncomfortable with the way many people adopt that quote is because of what we read in Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never of in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith is going to come when they hear it. Are we speaking? That, that's a challenging thought. Uh, some of us, I think, are very comfortable living out in a live and let live, libertarian sort of a way. I'll live Christianity. And maybe that'll impact people. And that's good. But please realize that's half of a truth. That's half. It's like rowing a rowboat with one oar. <laughs> You're just going in circles. <laughs> But you engage both oars, and you go. You have to live it. That's true. You also have to speak it. That's the uncomfortable bit, isn't it? Um, the first time I was ever led in studying lies was at when I was during my, belief, my brief time as a police officer. And I remember we had a class on lying, if you can believe it. It was interesting. <laughs> there I am in the Vermont Police Academy studying lying. And they taught us about all the different kinds of lies that exist. For example, there's exaggeration, there's minimization, there's lies of omission, of course. You just leave something out that's needed. And there's lies of just total fabrication. And what I've come to see is that pretty much all lies are born of fear. We lie because we're afraid of something. And Failure to speak the truth of the gospel is a lie of omission. And like all other lies, it is certainly born of fear. Fear of what will happen. Fear of being associated with Jesus. And so we need to challenge the fear, the cowardice of the church, I think, today. The cowardice in me, uh, sometimes. Not that we need to bring the conversation into every interaction, but when you feel led by the Lord to share your faith, are you, are you shoving that down? Or are you in all obedience, speaking your mouth to the person that God has laid on your heart? Um, Brett McCracken in his book, Uncomfortable, I'll finish with this. I promise I'm almost done. He says this. Uh, he wrote a book called Uncomfortable. I read it a few years ago. It's a good book. I recommend it to you. Brett McCracken wrote, I know plenty of Christians who get far more excited about missions out there than they do about their own personal holiness. Passionate church planters whose marriages are a mess. Progressive Christians engaged in social justice, but disengaged from their own spiritual vitality. But mission and morality are not two separate categories. 
Christopher Wright says, Our holiness is as much a part of our missional identity as of our personal sanctification. We preach a gospel of transformation, says Wright. We need to show some evidence of what transformation looks like. And then quoting Christopher Wright, An immoral church has nothing to say to an immoral world. So yeah, we do need to open our mouths, but we also need to be pursuing Christ ourselves. This is all part of it. Before Gideon was given instructions on how to deal with the Amalekites, his first job was to tear down the Asherah poles. Before the Israelites could take Ai, they had to deal with the sin hidden and buried beneath Achan's tent. Before ever Jesus gave the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, John the Baptist came preaching repentance. And there's an order here in the Bible which we should pay close attention to. Some of us here in this room, I'm afraid, might think, well, before then I can open my mouth and share the gospel, I have to first get my life in order. No, that's not exactly true. That, that is an ever-retreating horizon that will never show up. <laughs> Your life will never be apple pie order. You will always have stuff to repent of and fix. So you need to disabuse yourself of that idea. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that these two things need to go together. If God has laid on your heart and there is a growing discomfort that you have not obeyed him in this area, that God has put someone in your life with whom you should be sharing the gospel, but you have not, and part of why you have not is because you've sinned in front of them, maybe what you need to do is first go to them and say, when that thing happened, I sinned and I failed to live up to what I believe is true. And I want you to know I've repented of that and I need to ask your forgiveness for being wicked in front of you. And now let me tell you that my hope doesn't rest on me being a good person. I've put my trust in a perfect savior. Maybe before you can go and fight the Amalekites, you've got to tear down some ash or a pole. But you don't have to wait to begin the work of evangelism until you've cleaned up your life to a certain degree or something like that. I am not saying that. But as you go, pay attention to both. I think very, very often, and I've made this point oodles of times, the people who have the closest front seat row to my own life are Bowden, Lucy, Jack, Miles, Charlie, Ollie, and one Sarah Tate. <laughs> and uh, I, I pray for the salvation of my own children far more than I do many other people. Not to the neglect of other people, but a lot. And there have been loads of times where I've sinned in front of them, and out of a high concern that they would grow up to embrace Jesus personally, I have had to go to them at bedtime or something and say, Dad sinned. I blew it. But I'm so glad for Jesus. We don't have to wait until we're cleaned up to open our mouths to talk about the hope. But to some people in our lives, we have to begin at the first by just saying, I'm sorry, I sinned, and I hate it. <laughs> and my hope is not in my own goodness. As unexciting as our own personal righteousness may sound compared to the adventures that await in missions, the fact is, 
that our own wicked heart is the first frontier of any mission. That's another Brett McCracken quote that I got from that book. Really enjoyed it. So yeah, that's why we Colossians plays out the way that it does. Let's not neglect evangelism. Let's talk to God about the people in our lives. Let's talk to the people in our lives about our God. Please pray for those who are engaged, who make it their business day in and day out to be sharing the good news of the gospel. But also, let's not neglect being worshipers ourselves. Let all of it be the overflow of a life that's satisfied in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word this morning out of Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And God, I do pray that you would make us a people who open our mouths. And that when we open our mouths, people would see the sincerity of our words, not because we live in a perfect way, but because we are sincerely going after it. We are concerned about the sin in our own lives. And God, our testimony is not that we are a good people, but that we have put our trust in a perfect Savior. And so God, even in those those moments when we have sinned, it becomes an opportunity to explain the basis of our hope in Christ. So Father, I pray that you would unstop our tongues. God, I pray that you would make us bold not only in sharing our faith with others, but sharing the stories of your blessings here among us. If we are too scared to talk about you with other believers, what chance do we have of ever sharing our faith with a non-believer? So God, make us a people who give voice, who glorify you in all that you're doing and all that you have done. God, you have done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Father, I pray that that joy would flow, would bubble up from our hearts and escape the spillway of our mouths, that it would just pour out in praise, pour out in a sharing of you with others, a sharing of your activity with our brothers and sisters, that all might be encouraged by those stories. And God, I pray that in all of it, you'd be high and lifted up, and we would be helped. In Jesus' name, amen.